I read a line a number of years ago that has popped into the forefront of my thinking as we're trying to navigate this COVID pandemic. The line was this, no plan survives its collision with reality. I was reminded of that as I heard Dr. Hinshaw, the chief medical officer of uh, our province, respond to those who were angry about a certain decision that was made to put tighter boundaries around living. In case you didn't realize it, some people don't like it when boundaries are imposed on them or even suggested to them. And she said something like this, I understand that some people are angry. She just named it. And then she articulated that she clearly understood what it was that caused those feelings, the decision she had made. And then she said this, unfortunately, this virus does not respect our feelings. No plan. Even plans based on strong feelings survives its collision with reality. The truth hit me in a new way this week as we were in the space of trying to figure out when and how to reopen when we don't know for sure what reality is or will be in a few weeks, especially how reopening will affect the spread of the virus. Folks, would you please continue to pray for all of our leaders, our government leaders, leaders in medical science, business leaders, and, and all of the church leaders in our province and country? And as we pray, would you thank God for our medical leaders and government leaders that are seeking to work together well? Because ultimately, no plan survives its collision with reality. I was reminded of that because of what we're seeing in our teaching from God's word, that there is another reality that we need to see, to live in and to live from, that will keep us out of the ditches of demanding and expecting too much too soon, but also of caving in and giving up. By the way, which ditch do you think you're in danger of falling into? Of demanding and expecting too soon or of just caving in and giving up? That reality that we're to live in is painted for us in powerful images in the book of Revelation. What is Revelation? It is, it is the revealing, the unveiling, the opening a window on an overarching reality, a reality that no plan ever made will survive its collision with if it hasn't been made in light of this reality. Or to put it another way, the book of Revelation brings together all three of the worlds in which we live. The, the, the one we often call the real world, the world of the streets, which today is dominated by COVID-19. But how we see and process the world of the street stuff is totally determined by what's happening in another real world, the world between our ears. But if those are the only two worlds in which we live, here's what happens. We tend to do one of three things, all of which are dead ends and make life frustrating for ourselves and others around us. Some of us try to impose our will on the world of the streets, force everyone to live according to the reality of the world in our minds, right? We could spend all day talking about all of the different ways we do this, not just now, but all of the time. It's what causes problems in our relationships. It's what polarizes our politics. It's, it's, what, makes, it's what makes sexuality such a big issue today. You name it. Friends, let's just say it. It's not working, is it? Or 
either we impose our will on reality or we just give up and go with the flow and, and live a subpar, dissatisfying, despairing kind of life. Thinking our only option is to let the world of the streets and other people's realities limit and control and dictate what I do. Or there's a new way in which many of us in the last couple of generations are starting to live. And, and it's to, to live in a fantasy reality, a, a make-believe, made-up reality about ourselves, about some knight in shining armor who's going to come riding in for us, about a job that will prove we are who we think we are. We're told we can be anybody we want to be, and then, boom, we hit reality. And, you know, this is what a lot of people claim faith is all about. Living in a fantasy reality when, reality when I can't cope with real reality. And yet, we all know, or at least suspect, that this bigger reality exists. Like a somewhat famous or infamous person, depending on you, how you see him, said recently when he was asked, do you believe in God? Are you a Christian? His response was, well, I think the proper answer is no, but I'm terrified that he might exist. The book of Revelation is a window on this bigger reality. It helps us stay, well, grounded by living from this bigger reality, making it our first world so it can shape the world of our mind to live wisely in the world of the streets. It helps us by helping us see the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. Because if we can see the, re the, re the future, it helps us have healthy perspectives on it and make wise decisions in the present, especially an unpredictable and unpleasant present. It keeps us hostage by hope, but it also helps us by seeing the present in light of the invisible reality of the present. It pulls back the curtain on what's really happening in the here and now. Why? To help us become hostaged by hope, not in fear, not in frustration and anger, not frozen, unable to do anything. The, the book begins, as we saw last week, by reminding us that this hope, true hope, has a name. Jesus. Are you living in light of the hope that has a name? So what does that look like? That's what we see as we come to John's first vision, the first of seven visions in this book's book of Jesus. Jesus, who does not just give hope to me, the one who is my hope. There are three signs we're going to see in this passage of how we can live now as if hope has a name. We see the first sign in how John is, is actually seeing himself and seeing his world of the streets reality even before he has this vision of Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What we see here is how John is, is seeing himself and his island of Patmos prison reality before he gets this vision of Jesus. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Even before John gets this vision of Jesus, he's living in the reality of the hope of Jesus. So what is the hope quality that he shows us? Well, first of all, 
waiting well. In other words, patiently. Are you waiting well? What does it mean to wait well? Well, John says three things about that. Number one, willing to suffer. To wait well means to be willing to suffer. We, we don't know how long a journey it was for John, but, but John has come to recognize that when Jesus said, follow me, he meant follow him, to take the same path that he walked, to be willing to suffer and not get sucked into the temptation to, to fight and impose my will on the world. Now, now that's basic what, basically what fighting is, right? Fighting is either about imposing my will on the world or being enlisted by someone else to impose their will on everybody else. When someone says to me, well, I'm, just, I'm a fighter, I sometimes almost say, would you like to turn that into a confession? John was with the other apostles who were empowered by God's Spirit to bring Jesus to the world. And even before, even before Patmos, he was persecuted by the religious leaders and, and these apostles when they got out of that after the third time. It says they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the sake of the name. Living now in, in, in the hope of the name means waiting well. And waiting well means, well, willing to suffer. Life hurts. But if we take on any hurt for Jesus, like Jesus, we are showing what it means to wait well. John's willing to suffer because he is second. He's just simply honored to partner. He, he saw suffering in a bigger light, companion in the suffering and kingdom. In chapter 1, verse 6, he has said that Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. You know what I find so inspiring about John? John was the disciple who was the closest in terms of friendship to Jesus. And John, as the disciple who's closest to Jesus, is encouraged by his mother to think of himself as special. She even goes to Jesus in John's presence and in the presence of the other disciples and says, hey, Jesus, he's going to be the point man in your kingdom, isn't he? Talk about imposing your will on reality. Isn't it amazing how we screw things up for our kids? John was coached to think he would be the guy. And what happens? Peter is the guy from the inner circle who gets to play the lead role in the Jewish community for Jesus. And Paul, a total outsider to the group, is the guy who gets the big honor of taking Jesus' movement global. And John, well, John's the, the gap filler, the bridge builder, the, the perspective giver, the loving shepherd, but never the lead dog. But because John's hope is so real, he is just, he's just honored to partner. He does not have to have recognition or position. He's waiting well. Simply living in light of Jesus, which gives him, number three, strength to endure. Patient endurance, even on Patmos, knowing he might never leave Patmos. John is still living in the reality of the hope that is Jesus. Look at those together. Willing to suffer, honor to partner, strength to endure. Is that what you've been praying for, for yourself? for the church during this time? I've talked to several church leaders in the last several weeks who have said to me, Mel, I, I don't think the church has yet learned the lesson God wants them to learn from this. 
They all had slightly different versions of what that lesson might be. But the bottom line is that they said the church is still only looking at it in terms of let's get it over with. Let's get back to normal. We're still not saying let's get deeper with Jesus and learn to wait well. Are you learning to wait well? I think it's fair to conclude that God chose John to receive this vision because because John had learned what what Larry Osborne calls the dimmer switch principle. God only gives more light when we respond to the light we have. The way he puts it is this, when we respond to the light we have, God gives us more. When we don't, he takes the light away that we already have. And so here's John waiting well, living in the light he has, in the hope of the name. And one day, verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now I know how it's common to read this and, and think that it's saying that John is, is in the zone spiritually, worshiping God because it's Sunday. He's still falling into that pattern. I'm pretty sure that's not what it's saying here. Here's how I think we need to read it. John is doing his regular daily thing, whatever that is. And the Holy Spirit arrests his mind and takes him into what God in the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. The time when justice will be done, righteousness will be restored, judgment will be executed. John is taken out of time to see what is already reality now to God who is beyond time. John living in the light he has is given a bigger picture. A picture for whom? For these real world churches and for us as to the invisible realities of the present, to the Jesus who really is now, the Jesus we're called to live in light of. And so the second characteristic of of living in the light of a hope that has a name is that we can wait well when we see clearly, when we see Jesus as the reality he is for me now. So what's the picture of Jesus you grew up with? A flowing-haired, kindly-looking, non-manly man with a halo above his head holding a nice, white, clean lamb in his arms. Is that your picture? Or or perhaps a a wise-looking, somewhat introverted man sitting on a hillside with a child in his lap teaching. Perhaps it's a sad, defeated, resigned man hanging on a cross. Or maybe it's a glowing angel-like man suspended in the clouds, disappearing into the heavens. Now, there's elements in truth of all of those pictures, except that the facial expressions are all done to make sure they don't scare children, right? They may work for children, but those pictures are not robust enough to help me wait well, to hang in there and to thrive. Listen to the picture of the real Jesus now that God gives John for us to live on. Verse 12, I turned around 
to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his head. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Okay, that's definitely not a picture for a children's bedtime book. Let's walk through this picture rather quickly. The first thing he sees is, well, well, the first thing we tend to see, the clothes, right? Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. We, we, we see and, and we often draw conclusions about and make judgments about a person by their clothes. We identify, we identify their profession, their role by their uniform. So, so what's with the outfit? Well, you know, we, we see a person in scrubs with a stethoscope and a smile. It's got to be a nurse. Yeah, a nurse. He's smiling. Can't be a doctor. <laughs> Oops, sorry. We see someone in this getup and immediately think, oh, great. I mean, oh, great. A police officer. We see a guy in a black t-shirt and skinny jeans. Well, that's a no-brainer. Must be a pastor. We identify people by their uniform. Who is this guy dressed in a robe that reaches down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest? John recognizes those robes. They are the robes of a priest, the high priest. You see, a priest does two things. A priest presents God to people and people to God. A priest is the bridge between me and God, not just in dying for me as Jesus did. That's how he became the bridge, the real high priest, the only bridge to God because it's the bridge God built for us, not that I built. He didn't just die. He rose again. He didn't just rise again. He ascended to God's presence at his right hand, not just to rule over us, but as we read in the book of Hebrews, he is able to save completely, fully, finally, all those who come to God through him because he died for us. Oh, yes. But not only that, because he lives right now for us in God's presence, interceding with God for us. So first of all, John sees Jesus standing before God on our behalf at the same time as he is standing before us as God. Is that not enough? Every once in a while, I'll make a decision without LaDonna that that impacts LaDonna. Not often. Usually it's because it needs to be made and she's not available. And I'll call her and I'll let her know. And she says, you don't have to tell me all the reasons. You don't have to defend yourself. I I trust you. Folks, is that who you see in Jesus? The one who is standing before God saying, you can't accuse her, she's mine. You can't touch him, he's mine. Are you seeing seeing that Jesus is there for you and you can trust him? The clothes and then, well, of course, it's the hair. The hair on his head was white like wool. 
as white as snow. In our day, white, well, gray hair is to be avoided almost at all cost, right? Okay, I can hear you. Gray hair is better than no hair. I got it. In, in COVID season, hair is becoming an even bigger deal, I understand. LaDonna informed me recently that it's out there that in eight weeks, 88% of blondes will have disappeared from the face of the earth. It's okay. It had to be explained to me too. What's with the hair? In John's day, white hair was a sign of wisdom, of Jesus being for us and giving to us the wisdom for of God. In the book of Daniel, from which this image comes, it calls him the ancient of days. He knows, as we read in chapter one at the beginning, the beginning from the end, because he is the alpha and the omega. I know how it all began. I put it all together. I know how it's going to end. I'm already there. And I want to help you make decisions and think today, not just based on your Patmos reality, the isolation you are in right now that you desperately want to get out of. I want to help you make decisions and think in light of the really big picture. Will you look to me for my wisdom? We make decisions based on everything but Jesus' wisdom, don't we? We, we? we trust pop psychology over Jesus. And we try to reinterpret Jesus' truth in light of that. We see Jesus' truth in light of our reality instead of seeing our reality in light of Jesus' wisdom. Every one of us can think of a decision that we made, a demand we made, and perhaps have right now that we regret, or at least should regret. And if we're open to seeing it, we see that we made that decision not in light of the white-haired man, the man of wisdom. It's, it's what's involved in the trap of, of generational arrogance. Every generation thinks they're smarter and better than those who came after them or than those who went before them. Folks, let's look to the true white-haired man together in the heavens asking us to look at him. His hair and then his eyes. His eyes were like blazing fire. This ain't no fire pit fire, a warm campfire. There are certain eyes that are trained on us that we just, that we just look away from, right? We know that look and we'd rather ignore it. Why eyes of fire? Well, fire does one of two things. Fire either purifies or fire consumes, destroys. This revelation helps us to see that whatever it is that is not purified by seeing Jesus will ultimately be consumed by Jesus. That's what fire does. Now, we are told, now is the day of salvation, the day of allowing Jesus to claim us and, and bring us into his presence and to purify us. I have um, here in my hand... My favorite, simply cannot do without, cooking tool. An instant read, accurate to a small percentage of one degree, cooking thermometer. It's the best. Ask me for the brand afterwards. Folks, Father's Day is coming. Why? Because we need to put our meat on the fire until it reaches the temperature that destroys all of the harmful bacteria the bacteria that's harmful to our body, right? The eyes of Jesus 
If we let them, they surface, they reveal, they remind us of those harmful bacteria that will ultimately destroy and harm us. Habits, responses, feelings that we, that we just, what, what, will they just feel good? But ultimately destroy us. Are you allowing that Jesus to be your Jesus? What are the eyes of Jesus looking at in you? Something the other people maybe have been trying to point out to you for a while and you're saying, oh, that's just, that's just me, get used to it. Jesus is saying, but that's not the you you really want to be. That's not the you that, you, that can exist in my presence. Maybe it's something that nobody else sees in you. It's a secret in your heart. But Jesus sees. He wants you to get it out in the open so he can purify you. When was the last time you said to Jesus, Jesus, my true desire is for more than getting off Patmos, for more than making the world of the street I live in a place of ease and comfort for me. My desire is to become refined, pure, like gold refined in the fire. We'll see more about that in the next two weeks. His feet, number four, were like bronze glowing in the furnace. This part of the picture, like, like a lot of revelation, comes from one of Daniel's visions, talking about the foundation on which we build our lives and our cultures. What's bronze? Bronze is a, a combination of iron and copper. Iron is strong, but it rusts. Copper won't rust, but it's, it's pliable. Isn't that a picture of our life? We build our life on things that, that appear strong, but as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, they'll rust, ha have no value. Or more likely today, we build our life on something that we can flex and fit and mold to our agenda. Jesus picked up on that in his conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. He says, we're either building our life on sand, which will topple in a storm, or we're building our life on him, a solid foundation. Are you really building your life on Jesus? Or are you expecting Jesus to, to work around your plans, your designs, to simply bless the choices and decisions you make? That's not the Jesus whose name is hope. Number five, his voice is like the sound of roaring, rushing waters. To the woman at the well, Jesus presented himself as the water of life. And, and he's the water of life in all kinds of ways. Refreshing water, still water, roaring water, cleansing water. But here and several more times in this book of Revelation, it's the sound of roaring, rushing water that is talking about. I, I lived for several years, about 45 minutes from the falls, Niagara Falls. I love to take visitors to see the falls because I love to stand at the top of the falls at the railing and be mesmerized by the power of the water going over the falls. I'm hearing the roar as all that water hit the bottom. I love standing at the edge of the ocean in Hawaii or in the west coast of Vancouver Island watching the crashing of the waves, waves that will take you out or take you under. What is it? that is like rushing waters? It's his voice. The voice that spoke it all into existence. The voice that determines and overrules everything. And the voice that will ultimately make it all explode. The question is, whose words are you allowing to carry weight 
and have power in your life right now? What voice are you listening to above all others? Some of those roaring waters in our life are pretty strong, aren't they? Your boss says something to you and, and you find yourself reacting to it in fear. And you'd find yourself in a power struggle. Your parents wounded you with words years ago and you still allow those words to dominate you. Your wife or your husband said, I no longer love you. And those words still have you in a prison of resentment, of bitterness. But in all of those, it's, it's your feelings. The world between your ears that are most dominant voice in your life, right? Am I allowing the word of God to be the dom dominant voice above all of those roaring waters? In Hebrews 4, we read the word of God is full of living power. It's, it's sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into the innermost thoughts of our minds and desires of our heart. It exposes us for who we really are. You see, Jesus' words first expose us and then they heal us and then they build us up and make us strong. Number six, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Seven, the number of completeness. In his hands are every, uh, is everything. He is in control of everything that appears to be in control. How often do we quit something and pack it in because we think we can no longer control the situation? It's impossible. We don't have the strength, the ability to take it any longer. What are we looking at? We're looking at what's in our hands, our ability the issue is not what I have in my hand. The issue is whose hands am I in? Am I in the right hand of the one who has everything in his hand? Oh yes, he's allowing me to go through some pretty deep waters, but because I am in his hands, I will not be shaken. Will you hear that today? Will you see that in Jesus today? And out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. Whoa. This is a picture we'll see several times in the book. It's Jesus' word of judgment, of, of justice that will ultimately be complete. Why do I need to see this right now? I need to see this because when I see him as my priest and have accepted him as my bridge to God, this sword is not coming after me but it will ultimately bring justice for me. When I live in light of the hope that has a name, the one with the sword in his mouth, I won't constantly have to be resentful that life is so unfair because he will make all things right. I will be able to forgive because vengeance is mine, says God, I will repay because of the one with a sword in his mouth. And finally, his face was sh like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Jesus is the glorified, the beautiful, the magnificent Lord of the universe that if I really looked at him, I just couldn't be helped but being drawn to his beauty, his power, his awesomeness for me. Uh, are you being drawn to him? If not, you're not seeing well. The biggest hope issue has everything to do with what we see. Well, with who we see. You can't wait well 
unless you're seeing well. And you can't really live in the hope of the name unless you see full reality in that name. Hebrews 2 says there's, there's all kinds of things that we don't see, and yet we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a while, now crowned with glory and honor. Are you seeing your life right now, all of it, in light of the Jesus who is, who was, and who always will be? Waiting patiently, seeing clearly, and then, just 30 seconds here, worshiping fully. Verse 17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead for you. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. You are not dead until I say you're dead. And I am saying you're alive forevermore. John, seeing this, Jesus says, I'm toast. I'm a dead man. I give in. And Jesus says to him, you're right. But because you realize that, because you have seen me for who I am and accepted that for you, you have life and hope in me. It's not about giving up hope. It's about giving in wholly, fully to the hope that has a name. Jesus, waiting well because I'm seeing clearly and worshiping, submitting, giving in fully and wholly. I love the line from that great missionary statesman and spiritual life author, E. Stanley Jones, who says that the early Christians in John's day, that in persecution, living in an increasingly hostile Roman empire, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world is coming to, but rather in delight, look who has come to the world. Hope that has a name, Jesus. Oh, by the way, there is one plan that will not survive, or that will survive its collision with reality. Because it is reality. Are you in? Are you living in that plan today? Thank you, Jesus.